Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome back to part two of Stage's conversation with showman Simon Gallagher. In this companion episode, Simon takes us on a journey through his many performances and producing for the musical theatre stage. It all commenced with the dynamic Australian debut of the Broadway-interpreted The Pirates of Penzance, with Simon playing Frederick alongside a stellar cast that included John English, June Bronhill, David Atkins and Marina Pryor. He also leads us through the evolution of SG Entertainment and his career as a producer of musical theatre and concert entertainments. It is a full and illustrious career in which Simon has regularly excelled. Welcome back, Simon Gallagher. I love a show tune. I've even written a song or two about them. Um, (laughs) And, uh, well, you know, I I think it goes back to what Debbie Reynolds was talking about with I Love a Piano. If you can can find little gems like that, and very often songs from shows can do that for you. Yeah. So the Pirates of Penzance... Uh, emerges again in your life with the, the VSO production. Is that your first foray into the professional musical theatre stage? Yes, yes. And what I wanted to do was to be an actor and probably a musical actor, musical theatre actor. But that all got sidelined because my variety career had really taken off uh, and my television career. So the problem, as I was saying, that it was so, so busy, I was burning out by the age of about 24, 25, and I suddenly thought to myself, what am I doing this for? I don't really want to do this, and what I really want to do is be on the stage. And lo and behold, I was keeping my ear to the ground with what was going on overseas, and this show called The Pirates of Penzance was the newest big hit on Broadway with Linda Ronstadt and Kevin Klein and Rex Smith. And it was the show I knew, you know, going back to I was a GNS nut and nobody knew that. It was sort of a secret, secret life. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I buy this recording of The Pirates from New York and I go, this is extraordinary. Not, not because it's even so different. It's actually very much the same. All they're really doing to it is contemporarising and mainly that in the orchestrations uh, are redone, revoiced, and I could, I could see the nuances because I understood the structure of Gilbert and Sullivan but how they were interpreting it along the way. And, you know, and it's something that I was very, very um, strict about when 
I ended up doing our own Gilbert and Sullivan musicals to maintain the integrity of the Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, and yeah, sure, we re rearranged, we revoiced, we didn't really re uh, redo the, the orchestrations, we revoiced them. So every line that Sullivan had written uh, was still there in the orchestration. And every line of Gilbert was there or updated in a Gilbertian sort of way. Um, so I really understood this and I was desperate to then be part of this show. So I was then asked by um, uh, the producers of The Sound of Music whether I'd play Rolf. And, I'd say, and I said to John Robertson, I said, no, thanks, but no thanks. But if you do the Pirates of Penzance, give me a call. So I was dropping these little pearls around town and I, I got to know Ken Brodziak, uh, the promoter, empresario in, in Melbourne. Uh, it was at the Mike Walsh show, actually. And he said to me one day, he said, well, what would you really like to do next? And I said, Ken, I really want to do the Pirates of Penzance. Will you do it? <laughs> and he said, actually, I think I might. And um, so in 1982, we were asked, I was asked to be in the Pirates of Penzance with the Victorian State Opera. Suzanne Steele was due to play Ruth and she mentioned my name to the Victorian State Opera. We toured together and done some concerts together. She'd been a guest on my television show. And thanks to Suzanne, she, she once again dropped my name in the right circle. Uh, so wherever they went and they were talking about casting this Pirates, my name popped up and I was the right person at the right time, you know, the right look, the right age, the right profile. And I was really breaking my neck to do it. And at the last minute, I cancelled everything for six months. And at the last minute, the show got canned and didn't happen. It was going to originally be staged at the Princess Theatre in Melbourne when the opera was still doing that before the Victorian Arts Centre was open. And it all got canned and I thought, oh, wouldn't you know? Anyway, six months later, the, the, the phone goes again and they're saying, oh, now we're talking about putting the Pirates of Penzance on. I went, oh, yeah, pull the other one. And, uh, well, this time they said it's going to be with June Bronhill and John English and we'd like you to come down and chat to the producers. So I came down and met with Noel Ferrier, who was co-producer on the show, and lo and behold, uh, I had a, um, a combined meeting with David Atkins as well. We were both in the same room. Oh, and they brought the American director out. So we got to meet him. And then off we, off we trotted. Uh, the end of November of um, 1983, we started rehearsals. And I had never met John English. Uh, we'd crossed paths and I knew his manager actually better than than uh, than he and um very quickly we all became great pals we thought we were doing it at this new victorian art center it was the first musical to be there um, and it was actually staged in the uh, the concert hall now called the hamer hall um because the theater's building ha hadn't been completed but the pirates was able to be put on in that sort of venue, and it had huge seating capacity. So it was, um, it was a huge hit and an unexpected hit because to start with, musicals were sort of falling like flies around the, around the time. Cameron McIntosh had come in for his for, first foray with a show called Song and Dance, which didn't fire for him. Uh, a new production of Oliver with Geraldine Turner and Gary MacDonald had been and gone um, and musical theatre was a little in the doldrums and consequently they were blaming the price of the tickets and so they priced the the entrance the entry to the Pirates of Penzance at $17 a ticket and uh, very quickly they put it up to 25 but um, <laughs> 
but uh, the, the pirates turned everything around for, for the industry in, in many respects. There was suddenly confidence and buoyancy. One maiden breast Which does not feel The moral beauty Of making Worldly interest Subordinate To sense of duty Who would not give up Willingly All matrimonial ambition to rescue such a one as I from his unfortunate position, from his position to such a one as I from his unfortunate position. Alas, there's not one maiden breast which seems to feel the One maiden here Whose homely face And bad complexion Have caused all hope To disappear Of ever winning Man's affection To such a one If such there be I swear By heaven's arch above you if you'll cast your eyes on me, however plain you be, I love you. However plain you be, if you will cast your eyes on me. However plain you be, I What did you love about English as a performer and as a man? Because uh, you worked together a lot and were great mates. Uh, his incredible timing, his incredible discipline, uh, his 
his magic in many respects is like Buster Keaton, um, Charlie Chaplin, that he makes something that is highly rehearsed look totally spontaneous. And, you know, that's a great craft. Yeah. That's really, really special. And for someone not to just be able to pull that off once, but he'll pull it off exactly the same way or within the realms of where he knows he can go uh, eight times a week, every week of the year. Wow. And the, the person who was most impressed with this was Tony Lamond, who, who did Pirates for us, and she would just come into my dressing room and say, I cannot believe that man and the discipline and the, um, you know, the incredible stamina that he also had. He was Al Jolson too. You know, he, he had to be on he, and he lived for that time. The, and I said to him one night when the roof was lifting off the theatre and I said to him, what about this, mate? Isn't it amazing? And he said, mate, it's the best fun you can have with your clothes on. <laughs> true that, <laughs> true that. <laughs> Well, music theatre roles come along in quick succession with My Fair Lady and Hello, Dolly. And then the, the producing of, of the Gilbert and Sullivan trilogy. Yeah. Well, as quickly as the musicals came along, <clears throat> as quickly they um, went away because um, I was actually keen after I'd done um, oh, Pirates for the third season uh, by this stage, things had turned around internationally as well. And the, the biggest show that was coming to Australia was going to be Les Miserables. And I auditioned for it and went through rigorous uh, auditions and workshops with Trevor Nunn. And I then went to New York to see the, the show, which had only started its previews at that point. It hadn't officially opened in New York. So I saw the original New York cast in its you know, first week or so. And um, Trevor had sat me down and said, I'm not sure whether this show is going to be the right fit for you. I said, why? What do you mean? He said, well, you're now a big star and this is a very ensemble piece. I said, no, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I'm, I'm really keen to get my my teeth into it. Anyway, as fate would have it, they rang me in the middle of the night in a New York hotel to tell me that I hadn't got the part and uh, it was going to go to another Simon, Simon Burke. <laughs> so anyway, that was that. And then as, as fate would have it, I was immediately cast into My Fair Lady uh, for a Melbourne season uh, with the wonderful Louis Fiander playing... Uh, Higgins, Helen Boudet as Eliza, uh, beautiful Madge Ryan, who was an Australian actress who'd gone to England to make it big. She'd played Mrs Higgins. June Bromhill was the housekeeper. It was a lovely cast. Oh, um, uh, Warren Mitchell. Uh, Warren Mitchell, yes. Uh, so it was a terrific time. And, of course, my only proviso in doing the show was that they would agree to transposing the key of my... Uh, on the street where you live, up a tone because it sat better in my, you know, tessitura. Um, and they agreed. So um, I was able to ping that song out and other than that, it's a bloody long night in the theatre for Freddie because he does nothing. He does bugger all. And uh, after having done Pirates where you're never off stage, it was an incredible uh, adjustment to go, what do you do in the dressing room for all this time? <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do? Did you take up knitting or uh, crosswords? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I took up learning how to uh, operate a computer and I bought myself a very early Mac um, and started to teach myself spreadsheets, word processing and um, sort of topping up my, my business skills um, with what I believe was going to be the next big change, which was, you know, computers. And that's what I did. I, I brought my computer into the theatre and had it in the, in the dressing room. 
Anyway, so then off we went to Sydney with my fair lady and we had a cast change. Now, Lewis has since passed away, but I do know that he was exasperated with his Eliza. And he then went to the producers, and this is a very, a very wise lesson I learned from this. And uh, he said to the producers, well, it's either me or her if we go to Sydney. And they said, it's her. And Lewis didn't come. Lewis, Lewis was sidelined. And uh, he was the perfect, perfect Higgins. Oh, he was divine. You know, he was, I saw that production. He was great. Right. Yeah. And he, he could be cantankerous as well. And he was very frustrated because, as fate would have it, uh, in the first week and a half of our rehearsals in Melbourne, uh, our leading lady, Helen Boudet, was sick. And he then threw his arms up in horror after a week. He says, how can I rehearse My Fair Lady without Eliza? So by the time she did rock up, things were very tense and um, uh, they were fraught all the way through. And he, he wasn't terribly kind, but, you know, it's sort of history repeating itself when you read about Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews, that, you know, Rex was a difficult customer. Um, anyway, as I said, John, uh, John Waters took over the part. Uh, Warren Mitchell was no longer there and Noel Ferrier, who'd been pickering, had decided to flip roles and he was now going to be uh, Alfred Doolittle. And John Waters is a, a wonderful man and a great actor, but very understated and he'd been doing a lot of television at that point. So his performance was very low key and he wasn't a cantankerous Higgins at all. But consequently, on the opening night in Sydney, the audience was sort of wide-eyed and going, this is terrible. This is a terrible show. <laughs> uh, and they, Helen Boudet wasn't the greatest singer and they were expecting Julie Andrews, I guess. Um, anyway, so you could hear the audience sort of moaning and groaning in, in sort of sombre way. And I thought, oh, this is going to be awful. And I, I came out and I sang Street Where You Live, where the place erupted with applause. And sad to say, in a way, I walked away with the reviews. And, you know, if, Fred, if Freddie Ironsford Hill gets the reviews in My Fair Lady, you're absolutely stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> I have often walked down this street before but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before all at once am i several stories high knowing i'm on the street where you live are there lilac trees in the heart of town can you hear a lark in any other part of town does enchantment pour out of every door? No, it's just on the street where you live. And oh, the towering feeling just to know somehow you are near. The overpowering feeling that any second you may sigh People stop and stare, they don't bother me For there's nowhere else on earth that I would rather be Let the time go by, I won't care if I Can be here on the street where you live And oh, the towering feeling just to second you may suddenly appear people stop and stare they don't bother me for there's nowhere else on earth that I would rather be let the time go
a salient lesson that uh, that no show is foolproof, is it? You you must have the casting right, and the rest will look after itself. Yes, that's true. And uh, you know, my fair lady was a you know the greatest musical ever, uh, and the, the biggest musical up until the Phantom of the oh. Opera. So, uh, and you thought it was bomb-proof, but it wasn't quite. But they got it right later with Anthony Warlow, um, Reg. Reg, Some lovely people have done it since. Yeah, and the recent uh, Gordon Frost production of uh, the the couple of Englishmen that came out to do it were terrific. You've got your lovely dog there. What 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 sort of puppy is he? Oh, I'll show you. She's a big standard poodle. Oh, gorgeous. What's her name? Her name is Mimi. Mimi. A fan of La Boheme? <laughs> Perhaps, yes. Or in, this, in her sense, it's all about Mimi. Me. <laughs> <laughs> SG Productions, when, when does that come about? Well, um, it, um, it started as a publishing house for my compositions. I'd been well advised early on when I was signing record contracts. Very often the record companies want your publishing as well if you're a songwriter. And someone had given me the tip that, you know, you don't need to sign over your publishing to somebody else if you're going to record the songs yourself. If you're a singer-songwriter, a publishing company's normal uh, line of duty is to have your songs placed with a recording artist. Therefore, they get their percentages, blah, blah. But if you're in control of your own recordings, then you really can also control control your own publishing. And um, Peter Allen had this company called Woolno Music, and, uh, and that was his real name. Walsh had had a company called Hayden Productions, which was his middle name. So one of my early companies was a combination of my middle name and my parents' middle names. But then for the, for the, for the publishing, I thought, oh, what, what else can I, can I have? So I, um, I phonetically spelt my initials of SG into E-double-S-G-double-E and called it Melodies, SG Melodies. So it controlled and still does all of my publishing and it then became the producer of my recordings because our arrangement with the record company was what was used to be called a lease deal where you would pay for all of the expenses uh, and put the record out and you'd get a much higher percentage back from the record company rather than just being the artist. It also gave you much greater control over what you were doing and how you were doing it. So SG Melodies then produced all of those records, financed them, and uh, it was ideal then for that company to be the company that then became the the theatrical company. Did the company uh, publish Australia Be Proud? Yes, it did, yes. It's it's bittersweet for me now in in retrospect. Uh, It was a terrific song at the time for me. I see it now as a bit jingoistic. Um, it's, it's a bit too hand on heart. Um, but I'd written it just as a, as a bit of fun with a, with a lyricist. And um, when I was in the studio, Mike Walsh's business partner was a fellow called David Price. And um, David was the one at that point overseeing what we were doing in the studio. And I, I was speaking to David between takes on something or a, a band break, and I said, David, I've just written this song. What do you think of it? Blah, blah, blah. And um, he, he, he immediately said, that's fantastic. Can we do that on the Mike Walsh show next week? I said, next week? And I, he said, oh, I said, it'd be great. I said, well, can I have a boys' choir? To, to sing with me. He said, yeah, sure, we'll get your boys quiet. And uh, so we, we did it for live television first and the switchboard lit up all around the country on the Walsh Show with this song and it was very you know, patriotic and, and it was before 
Peter had written, I still call Australia home. Uh, and it was much more sort of uplifting than that. Anyway, so it was so successful that we then had to repeat it three days later on the show, once again live to air, and then we recorded it. The song was then used time and time again for Australia Day, Australia Day Live, even in, and in Canberra when television used to close transmission at a certain hour of the day, uh, Channel 7 in Canberra would play that song with all of the military um, footage and, you know, guns roaring and so on. So the Canberrians, I think, knew it more than anybody because they'd hear it every night as they were going to bed. Australian by birth, or Australian by choice Our land is amazing, we sing in one voice We're proud of our country, we choose to live in Fight for the future, we're certain to win There's much to be proud of in our great country A beautiful land that's surrounded by sea Problems, gee, they're small compared to some countries, they're nothing at all. So come on, Australia, stand tall and be proud. We are Australians, watch out and love. We're brothers and sisters throughout our great land, and we'll show all the world that united we stand. So you think yourselves. Lucky we are to live in a country that's better by far. To have all the freedom that we all can share. Shake hands with your neighbors and show them you care. So come on, Australia, stand tall and be proud. We are Australians, one shout in love. We're brothers and sisters. The Gilbert and Sullivan trilogy, Mikado, Pirates and HMS Pinafore, that SG yes. Theatrical yes. produced, that was that a five-year plan? Obviously, you'd had some foresight in that you wanted to do three of them. Or yes. was Pirates so successful you thought, my God, what do we do now? How do we capitalise on that? Well, it's a bit of both. Um, I, had to, I had to plan it out very carefully with Pirates because... You know, to underwrite all of that myself was such a huge undertaking. And um, what I did was for the original initial seasons for Brisbane and Perth, I actually sold the show off for a guaranteed fee. Brisbane sold off to the Lyric Opera of Queensland and sold off to the Burswood Casino in Perth. So then I had this um, nest egg of guaranteed money for a guaranteed season. So we were off and running that way. It was then time to go to, to put our toe in the big water of Sydney. And I got this strange request uh, and a phone call from somebody who was very mysterious. And he said, um, 
look, I'm representing somebody else who I can't tell you who it is, uh, but we, he's very interested in talking about helping you out with the Pirates of Penzance in Sydney. He said, uh, will you send us uh, in, an, in, an investment proposal to a post office box in Sydney? And I thought, who are these people? Is it some sort of gangster? <laughs> and uh, and I thought, oh, well, I'll send it off and see what happens. Anyway, a week or so later, the phone came, uh, the phone call came back and they said, well, yes, the, the gentleman has, has now had a look at it and he wants you to come to Sydney to meet him. I said, oh, yeah, great. When? He said, next week and uh, come out to Terry Hills in Sydney and come to Dick Smith's house. And... Uh, I went, whoa! So I got to meet the, the the great Dick Smith for the first time, although he'd written me a fan letter in the very first Pirates of Penzance 10 years before when we were at the Regent Theatre in Sydney. And I remember it then, and I'd, I'd put this letter on my, my dressing room mirror um, from, you know, the famous Dick Smith. So here he was in person and he said, how much money do you want? And I went, oh, well, I don't quite know. Um, uh, so um, we came to uh, an arrangement. He said, I only want to do Sydney. I said, don't you want to invest in the whole lot? No, just Sydney. And um, so off we went. And that gave me the impetus into really getting Sydney going and cracking and the money to, to market it because the advance was very poor for the pirates in Sydney. And suddenly I thought, this is make or break time. So I then ran full page ads in the Sunday papers on the back page of the Sydney Sunday Telegraph um, and the Sun Herald, big, huge ads in the um, Sydney Morning Herald. And we were cheeky because by now the Phantom of the Opera had opened. So we were taking pot shots and sending other shows up there was the, a chorus line was at Her Majesty's. So we had um, a little paper cutouts of John, Tony Lamont and myself duplicated and we called it a pirate's line. And that was our ad in the paper that week. And he was doing a spoof with a phantom mask for another. So people suddenly got that we were taking the piss out of others. And that's what the show was all about. That's what Gilbert and Sullivan was often about. So um, it suddenly clicked. And by the time we finished at the State Theatre, um, the day we closed, you know, it's a terrible, the worst thing in show business, in my opinion, is not having an empty house, but having a full house with no more seats to sell. Um, and we, uh, we were selling standing room at the State Theatre uh, and we had to close because we were going to Melbourne. We couldn't extend any longer but it was an incredible success. You're quite clever too in that you were broadening your audience with by recording and, and broadcasting on the ABC, the, the productions. Thanks again to Michael Shrimpton, my original TV producer at the ABC. He was now head of entertainment, light entertainment, and based out of Sydney. So Michael was a great friend and I invited him to the show and immediately he saw, he said, we have to put this on the, on the ABC. We have to do a simulcast of it. I went, oh, really? So off we did. And I didn't even realise that, of course, with that came videos. Uh, and the ABC were running their ABC shops very successfully at the time. So Pirates not only played to millions of people free to air, but then was immediately out on video to be to sell at uh, ABC shops and went triple platinum. Well, SG Theatrical really takes off with Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and Masterclass. You are obviously, and, and a new musical, Eureka, you are obviously loving your role as producer. Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, very hard work. Um, you were talking before about how the others came along in that trilogy of Gilbert and Sullivan. What I really wanted to set out to do was I wanted to do the Mikado as my first musical. And I started to make 
big steps towards doing that. But commercial reality got the better of me and realised that I realised that we, we could capitalise on the former success that John and I had had and to sort of springboard from that. So <clears throat> Mercado got shelved and the Pirates uh, became, you know, its great success as it was. But then I was trying to get a deal with the Lyric Opera of Queensland to do something similar all the way around again and to do a second show and pre-sell it to them, pre-sell it to Burswood and underwrite the capital investment a lot by that. However, we'd had a parting of the ways that the Lyric Opera had gone off and they decided to partner John Frost with The Secret Garden and uh, that sort of left me a bit high and dry. So then I thought, well, bugger it, I'll just do it myself. I think we can give this a go. We also had lots, lots of profit uh, and we had the opportunity now to form an ensemble company that was able to put on their own shows. And I thought, what better way to do it than the way that Gilbert and Sullivan originally did it, which is they put the same actors and artists and singers into the various productions. And if you look at them, they're all very type. There is a tenor, there's always a baritone, there's always a comic. And you can really put all the various different uh, characters into the same artists. So John became Poobah. The, the Major General became Coco in, in the Mikado. Uh, Frederick, the tenor, becomes Nanky Poo, the soprano, et cetera, et cetera. So th there was an immediate shorthand because I kept all of the, the artistic team together as well, the creative team. So the same designers, same uh, musical director, uh, director, and we were able to immediately step out and put this new show on and in fact we were workshopping the orchestrations uh, whilst we were touring with pirates and um, we were trying them out because we had the band on the road with us so Kevin would then sketch these new ones out and we'd try it and say yeah yeah or change this change that so by the time the the uh, major rehearsals came along for Mikado we were well and truly uh, off and running in knowing what we wanted to do and how to do it uh, in fact, if you look at the set of the Mikado, it's the same set as the Pirates of Penzance. It's just clad in different um, scenery. It's the same frame. And that was the brief as well. So we could tour them both together in repertory, in repertoire, repertory uh, if we so chose. And then I thought, well, we can't, I really want to do a third one. Are we game enough? You know, can we do a trilogy like, like a Star Wars trilogy on film? I don't think anyone had ever done it in live theatre to do three shows by the same by the same company, the same premise. And uh, I said, I think we need to have a rest from, or the audience needs to have a rest. And I really believe also that it could work in any part of the world where Gilbert and Sullivan is known, and that's generally wherever cricket is played. <laughs> <laughs> So the easiest and closest place to try it out was New Zealand. So by 1996, we packed up our goods and chattels, our sets and costumes, and went to New Zealand and decided that we would uh, create a New Zealand company, which we did. And luckily for me, John was a great star in New Zealand as well. Uh, but it made absolutely no sense to put Simon Gallagher into the show in New Zealand because I wasn't known. So why would I want to schlep around eight times a week um, if it had no, uh, no real impact on the box office? And the way to do it was to do it how it had been done here, which was put New Zealanders into the show, put New Zealand stars and names that they knew. So we put Derek Metzger into the show, who was a big New Zealand artist, uh, we put various others. Uh, later on, we put Rima Tuiata. So the first show we did in New Zealand was the Mikado because that was the one that we'd most recently done. So we were able to just pick that up, move across the ditch and, and restage it in a, in a sense. Uh, 
John was very cocky about it and said to everybody I said, at the time, he said, oh, the Mikado, it's all right, but wait till you see the pirates. And um, I was always a little wounded in Australia when the Mikado came out because there were immediate comparisons made with the pirates and generally Mikado came off second best. Ultimately, I think it's because it's the pony that they've seen in many respects. And if a second time round, well, you sort of know, know the gags, you know what's coming, even though the, the score is different. Anyway, so Mikado was a great success in New Zealand as well as Australia, but it was the success on its own. And it, I, it was the proudest I felt because I'd always believed so much in Mikado and it had then stood up on its, in its own right and was a success all by itself in New Zealand. And Pirates was coming along as its sequel uh, about six months later. John used to tell the stories to the cast about, oh, how great Pirates is and, you know, it'll brain them. Well, as it turned out, when the Pirates came, it was a success. But people used to say in New Zealand, oh, it's lovely, but not as good as the Mikado, <laughs> where it was always the opposite <laughs> in Australia. Then along, then we thought, okay, third time, we'll roll, you know, we'll roll the, the roulette wheel one more time. And HMS Pinafore was the one. And we started by saying, I was going to do Iolanthe because I had great visions of Iolanthe being set a bit like Peter Pan in, in recent times, where a lot of the action would then be in the air and use a fantastic flying company like Flying by Foy. Um, uh, to to stage a lot of this in the first act, particularly where all these fairies are about, to have all of the action just, sw just swimming about and flying about. Um, anyway, the audience, audience, um, what do you call it? Uh, when you do re audience research, is always a good thing. And whilst we were still at Her Majesty's in Melbourne and people were coming backstage after the show. They're saying, oh, this is so great. And which one are you doing next? And I said, we're going to do Iolanthe. Where immediately they'd go, what? What do you mean? What's that one? And that happened to me time and time again. And suddenly I thought, hey, we're taking enough of a risk doing this third time around without having this sort of reaction from your fans. I think I need to go back and rethink it. So as the director, Craig Schaefer, arrived uh, to audition for our new show, Iolanthe, he got off the aeroplane to be told by his producer, me, that we're not doing Iolanthe, we're doing HMS Pinafore. <laughs> he said, what's that? Oh, no. <laughs> he, he'd done all of his research and um, we'd even uh, started to, to write bits and... and uh, design things and suddenly at the last minute I said no we're not doing it we're not doing it we're going to do HMS Pinafore funnily enough Pinafore was the one GNS that I knew least um, and I had to go and do a lot of homework myself but um, the we had a, a great great team and once again a fantastic shorthand and it was the first show that we'd opened in Melbourne and premiered in Melbourne. And Amanda Muggleton we had in it, as well as the, um, you know, the old gang. And it was the best, best time, best, best fun. When you talk about, you know, producing was, was a great thing, I found it all the more and more difficult to be able to produce and to be in these shows because you had to do eight shows a week and you had to be standing up alongside this great John English who was always consistent and, you know, there was no walking through a show. Um, so you had to be really on your metal to, um, to do that. And it's very exhausting to be doing that particular show which was so physical and so vocally demanding um, that you all you could do was live and breathe it. But then I also had to produce the whole thing by day and you by that stage 
you're producing in various cities because the shows were limited runs. So you're running in this town, you're marketing in another, you're doing groups in another city, and it was full, full on. So when Pinafore was coming along, I said to John, I said, John, I don't think I can do this one. I said, I think I need to put somebody else into the show. And we started by um, by fishing around and wanting various people. And then I inquired about Simon Burke. And um, then his agent said, oh, yes, Simon will do it for $10,000 a week. And then I thought to myself, $10,000 a week, I'll do it for $10,000 a week. <laughs> <laughs> So I went back to John and said, I'm doing it. So um, you, you continued in that the great tradition of actor-manager. Oh, yes. yes. But it really killed me. Um, so when shows like A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum came along, that was the time to take myself out of it. And we put the lovely John Bowles into that as the juve lead. I also was getting a bit long in the tooth to be playing the, the juve lead <laughs> by now. And um, uh, so that was great. And the, the masterclass story, well, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum is what you call an artistic success. It didn't make a dime. Right. <laughs> and in fact, lost. But by this stage, we were so, so prolific and so busy that I was running forum in one theatre at the, at the Victorian Arts Centre and I was running Masterclass in the other theatre. And I think I was the only producer ever to be running two big shows in two venues at the same time. But I'd seen Amanda, who was a great friend because of HMS Pinafore, I'd seen her do Masterclass in Adelaide. It was directed by Rodney Fisher and produced, co-produced by the Sydney Theatre Company and Wayne Harrison. So I went to see it in, in the last days of Adelaide and we went back to the hotel afterwards and they were sort of all sort of moaning and groaning because the show wasn't going to go to Melbourne because Melbourne Theatre Company had first right of refusal and they'd said, no, thanks very much. Uh, Robin um, Nevin also had first right of refusal to go back to the part and um, she also had declined, luckily, because... Uh, I was keen to have Amanda. Anyway, they said, well, this is the end of the show because, uh, no, we can't get a producer to put it on in Melbourne. So this little black duck put his hand up there and then in the hotel room and said to Wayne, I'll produce it. So that's what happened. And once again, a very poor advance. It was in the summertime where plays were generally not considered to be the, uh, the fair to, to view in the summer. However, I really thought it was a very, very powerful piece and well worth a shot. Consequently, we put it on and Melbourne went nuts for it. They went mad. It won her a Green Room Award, later a Helpman Award. So it really, really paid off for my darling friend, Amanda. I I was the lonely one Wondering what went wrong Why love had come And left me lonely I, I was so confused Feeling like I'd just been used Then you came to me And my loneliness left me I used to think I was tied to a heartache That was the heartbreak But now that I've found you Even the nights are better Now that we're here together Even the nights are better Since i found you what to do Cause you had been lonely too And you showed me how 
the pain And you did more than mend a broken heart Cause now you've made a fire start And I, I can see that you feel the same way I never dreamed there'd be someone to hold me Until you told me you never done found you Even the nights are better Great to see you return to the stage in recent years with shows like Hairspray and as the wonderful Wizard of Oz in Wicked. Yes, you know, I'm I'm very very light light and shade or black and white when it comes to my performing. I've been through periods of stage fright and many periods of not wanting to do it. Um, and at one stage my dear friend Julie Anthony was talking to me and she said, well, what are you going to do now? Are you going to go back into concerts or do some more theatre? And I said, Julie, I can't do anything anymore. I, I'm just not up to it. She said, oh, don't be ridiculous. I said, I can't. I really can't. I don't think I can go out there and do it. And she said to me, well, if I go out there with you, will you do it then? And I said, oh, yeah. So that's how the, um, the collaboration, you know, my other great collaboration in life was with Julie Anthony. We'd always been pals and done specials together and things like that, but had never toured. And suddenly this great new adventure and singing once again came through my veins and to be singing with the great Julie. And once again, you know, you have to be on your metal being out there with her no slouching around with, with that. <laughs> so it, it gave me the taste of it again. Uh, my producing had was bittersweet. I'd done uh, the musical Eureka, but I'd really done that as a line producer. I was doing it for other people. And I found that a very difficult process, firstly because it wasn't my team, it wasn't really my show, and I didn't really have a lot of um, say-so when it came to being the boss. Um, a volatile director in Gail Edwards, uh, very difficult selling an Australian musical and about history, you know. Um, people had had the Eureka Stockade drummed down their throats as kids, I think. And, you know, the, the work arguably was flawed in, in some respects but fantastic to be able to, to have that amount of money to be able to put on and give, give an Australian musical a real good go. Uh, but it really took it out of me. Um, the dynamic backstage was, was so, um, oh, it was, it was very difficult. And um, it really burnt me out. And, I, and I, I swore then I would never want to produce another musical again because it was, it was hard, it was very hard. <clears throat> anyway, um, time marched on and I, I then was working with Julie, but the, the opportunity came along where I suddenly had this pang 
And I'd seen various people play in Hairspray and I saw it was being done in, in Brisbane. So I rang the producer and I said, have you cast the role of Edna Turnblad yet? He said, no, I haven't. He said, I just, I'm, I'm hitting a brick wall. He said, uh, I don't know where to go. And then he said, would you do it? And I said, yeah, I think I might. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how I got into hairspray. Um, It's a a hot costume. It is a bloody hot costume. (laughs) (laughs) But all of my boys' school musical days had come back to revisit me. There I was back in a frock. Oh, yes, from Kate to Edna. (laughs) That's right. That's the name of of your book, perhaps. Uh, um, I ended up having a great time. So um, so then I just had this call out of the blue from Frosty, from John Frost one day, and he said, um, Reg is leaving Wicked and uh, would you consider taking over? And I said, you know what, I think I might. But I had a terrible confession to make that Wicked had been so successful all over the world and I had never seen it. Wow. And, in fact, I'd taken great pride in avoiding it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know anything about it except some friends of mine had seen it in its early days in America and said, oh, it's not very good. Anyway. Did you, did you, admit, so, that, did you admit that to Frosty or did you bluff your way through I did. Yeah. No, I admitted it to him and I said, uh, he said, well, I'll fly you to Sydney so you can see it. So that's what he did. I, I came to Sydney and saw the, the show before I finally committed to it and um, fell in love with it uh, immediately and in love with the role. And, you know, I played Freddie Arnsford Hill, so I knew how it was to sit in the dressing room for an hour and a half before you get on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Wicked was great fun and it's very difficult and I had learnt and observed from putting new people into my own shows that it's the worst job in the world you can give to an actor to come in and take over because firstly uh, they have very little rehearsal time and they have next to no time with the uh, real cast because, you know, they're, they're doing the show at night. So I found it a whole new discipline to to put into practice where I was sort of like the phantom, in a, in a sense, in a capital theatre in Sydney, rehearsing quietly by day, watching Reg by night, and it was a secret. Nobody knew it was me until uh, the time was to come to take over the role. So... Boy, it was it was hard yakka, and not having been in a in a big musical like that for some time, I really had to have my wits about me uh, in getting it together. And but what was important, I thought, because once again I knew how companies bond as they're working together, and people who are coming in to join that company along the way, it's very difficult at times for them to sort of gel, you know. So what I was doing every other time when I wasn't learning my lines was I was I had photographs from the program of every cast member and I then put all of their 10 by 8s around my mirror and I would learn their names, each and every single one of them by face and by name. So by the time I came in and joined the company, I knew everybody by name and which astonished them how does he know us uh so we we were able to sort of forge a a very quick and terrific relationship uh as i joined the company um would also come around with simon's lollies i had the set man build me like an old cigarette girl box (laughs) with a case and i'd walk into into vocal warm-up every night and we'd had healthy choices as well 
some dried fruits and nuts and but also some really bad things like snakes and <laughs> jelly babies. As so, you say, co company cohesion is really important. Yeah, because once again, I'm not on stage for the first hour and 20 or something. So, uh, it, and they're extraordinarily busy. They're changing multiple costumes. So the only time to really bond with them was that time of vocal warm-up and physical warm-up and to getting, getting to know the company then. But it was one of the greatest experiences that I ended up having. You have served and you continue to serve on various arts bodies, boards, um, QPAC, the Queensland Symphony, the Helpman Awards. Arts mm -hmm. advocacy is obviously very important to you. Yes, it is. And it comes back, I think, to Debbie Reynolds in a, in a funny sort of way because her adage was always to give something back and also to be able to pass on hard-earned knowledge in a quicker way, a shorthand, you know. She said, why should young people have to learn from, from the very beginning again as these older entertainers are feeling threatened and not wanting to impart their knowledge. She said, I believe that my, it's my duty to pass that on. And that's how we became great advocates, great, great friends. Um, so that's always been my philosophy, that you pass this on to the next generation uh, and you, you, you guide them as much as you can. And um, so, you know, that, that's why it gives me great, great pleasure to be able to to do that in this sort of way. Have you still got stuff to do in your career? I mean, you've covered television, stage, musicals, recording, producing. What else? No, I'm, I call myself retired. You are? Okay. <laughs> yes, and I really do love being at home. Um, my home is my sanctuary. Uh, I've always craved being at home particularly in my younger years because I was so busy and most of the work was always elsewhere. So to be here with my dogs um, is, a, is a wonderful thing. Also, you know, getting long in the tooth um, and uh, it depends. You know, never say never, as they say, but um, I'm not sort of chomping at the bit to go and do other things. Well, Simon, thank you so much for your generosity of, of time today and, and anecdote. It's been, been wonderful. And um, all the best with your retirement. Oh, thanks, Peter. <laughs> thank you. Simon's story is a significant chapter in the legacy of great performance on Australian stages. And it was super to record such contribution in this two-part episode. My thanks to Simon for his enthusiasm and generosity of story. And a reminder that he has extensive recordings, some of which we heard today, and all available from iTunes. Great listening and guaranteed to bring a smile to your face. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Stages. I'm Peter Ayers. I'll catch you next time.